Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Baby Driver. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my brother of the contrary, Julio. Julio, uh, it is finally starting to feel like fall here in Austin, Texas. Or at least it was. And then it was hot as shit yesterday, and then it rained, and then it's cool again. And I think we're supposed to start getting a cold front, which for us means it's going to be down to 80 this weekend. <laughs> And so what that means for me is that we are getting to the prime movie viewing months. Specifically, obviously, the month of October brings a horror movie every day. And um, while we don't quite get that nice autumn glow that a lot of uh, listeners elsewhere uh, may get, especially our friends in the Midwest and the, uh, the East Coast, excuse me, we're getting there. And we're starting to get that kind of cool breeze on our face and before we can get to this magical time that i'm describing uh, which eventually leads into christmas movies i'm telling you it, this is the the peak season to be a jaded movie fan is fall leading into winter because that's you know you're old and crotchety but you have all your classics and those come in handy most then and there before we can get there though we're still the sun's still out and we're going you know to the scorching asphalt for uh just an absolute action thriller that set the fucking world on fire. Edgar White, Edgar Wright, excuse me, the writer Edgar and director. Edgar White is, is right. <laughs> Edgar White is right. <laughs> A famed white people director, Edgar Wright, <laughs> in 2017, uh, premiered his movie in 2017 at South by Southwest. So we're, again, the white meter is already off the charts. <laughs> we need that. I wish we could have like video aids to this because we could have that... Uh, clip of dr frank with the sarcasm detector on the simpsons this baby's <laughs> off the charts uh, <laughs> but yes it was a summer film released in uh, on june 28th of 2017 edgar wright brought us baby driver which was the hipster blockbuster to end all hipster blockbusters and isn't uh, that every edgar wright release though you would think but this one i remember getting way way more even more so than scott pilgrim getting just the absolute hyperbolic as you know as in love as they can be with themselves and the the film the the review i remember it, what came before this i believe was world's end which was kind of like the definitive edgar wright b-side where <laughs> it did not get the just overwhelming amount of praise as you know Shaun of the dead or as we mentioned scott pilgrim but uh did you ever see the world's end oh yeah yeah i i saw it in theaters it was a uh... The only time I've been late to an Alamo draft house, and they let me in. 
Oh, you got away with it. And I was like, I'm like, this is cool, but you guys are breaking your own rules. <laughs> but I remember really enjoying that movie. And then things kind of laid dormant for a few years. And then came Baby Driver, and it seemed like it was just his... It's his life's a goal or his life's accomplishment is what I'm trying to say was Baby Driver and everything he had done up until that point led to that moment or so the critics and the audiences that loved this movie would have you believe. So what you're saying is uh, Baby Driver is Edgar Wright's pain and gain? (laughs) I'm not sure destiny fits into the equation here more so than just someone who has a clear vision for what he wants. So I'm not willing to yet label it his pain and gain, uh, but it's definitely, um, you know, his good fellas, uh, at least that's wow. what people. That's what people would li- want you to believe. Um, <laughs> just like throwing good fellas to the like, casually as a reference. <laughs> no, well, isn't that widely regarded as Scorsese's best? Isn't that what people will typically? T- I I think it's Casino personally, but isn't right. that the the go to? Is Goodfellas? I think between Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, and Raging Bull, or constantly depending on what kind of pretentious film snob you're talking to. <laughs> God, that's. I like Raging Bull, but when people, oh, that's Scorsese's best, I'm just like, fuck off. <laughs> it's in black and white, man. Already. Those are the people. That, <laughs> yeah, we, here we are, 2017, Baby Driver, uh, Ansel Adams, or Ansel, Ansel Elgort, excuse me, and uh, Christopher Plummer, John Hamm, Jamie Foxx, and then who is the, well, there's two lovely young ladies in this, Lily James. Cinderella. weird. That's a combination of my and my sister's names. And then sexy Latina. Yeah, Elsie Gonzalez. Elza Gonzalez. Aza Gonzalez. Miss Gonzalez. Yeah, a, a cast of relative unknowns with the exception of John Hamm and uh, Jamie Foxx. Well, I mean, Christopher Plummer had two Oscars by then. <laughs> yes, but he faded into obscurity following this. <laughs> yes. His swan song. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, people 20 years from now will watch this and say, who's, you know, Christopher Plummer? Who the hell's that? It's going to be one of those where, like, uh, they, they're they looking down his filmography and they go, like, Christopher Plummer's last movie was Baby Driver? What the fuck? <laughs> uh, there were a couple names that either popped up in the opening credits or uh, just appeared throughout the film that I popped huge for that I had no idea were in this because my knowledge of this movie was fairly minimal. I remember your review, and I remember our friend of the podcast uh, read his review, and then I just remember everyone else acting like it was the greatest thing ever, which you already made this point, but the reaction, the immediate response to this felt a lot like Scott Pilgrim, and I love Scott Pilgrim, so this was always on the back burner as something I was inevitably going to see, but here we are to discuss it. We are the Contrarians. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, known as Certified Fresh, that pretty IP that they have and slap on these movies like a goddamn sticker. Shoot for about 85% and above. And what we'll do with those movies is kind of point out some of the plot holes, foibles, uh, bad acting, you know, the things that critics overlooked, be it, you know, some fucked up moral tale it tells or just things not making sense. We're going to tell you exactly what's wrong with these movies that are supposed to be, you know, the greatest things that have ever happened, especially with Baby Driver, which I believe is 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's in that higher echelon. And I would almost guarantee, having never uh, seen the DVD or Blu-ray for this, it's one of those that has the sticker on it that says Certified Fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, because it absolutely seems like that type of movie. And the other side of the coin, 
On alternating episodes, we'll find a movie that is rated low on Rotten Tomatoes. We shoot for about 30% and below. Those nasty green splotches known as rotten. And what we'll do is point out uh, the positive merit of those films, the things that were overlooked, the things that were unfairly maligned, and uh, basically in a never-ending quest to just let you all know that art is subjective and you can be as over the moon about something as you want to be, or you can just choose to hate something despite uh, how good it could be. But that comprises the first half of the podcast, Julio. It's what we call Contrarian's Corner. If listeners want to know how we really feel about the movies that we discuss, they just need to hang around to the second half. That's correct. Uh, the second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, that's when we stop pretending that we feel about the movie one way or the other, and we share our true feelings with each other and with the audience. Uh, I mean, as Alex alluded to just a little bit ago, I already shared my feelings for Baby Driver years ago when it came out. <laughs> but... That was years ago. I hadn't seen the movie since. I rewatched it last night, and uh, who knows? Maybe our feelings have changed, Alex. I, I haven't texted you about it at all. And I've gotten a couple texts from you that I could maybe try to infer some sort of opinion from them, but I'm not even going to try because I can just wait until we're done with Contrarian's Corner and just hear directly from you. Did you hate it? Did you love it? Are you middling? Did you, did you not understand what was going on? So that's what you have uh, to look forward to in the second half of the show. But first, we're going to... Uh, Try to be funny about it and be contrarians. It's what we do. It's our show. Buy a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Buy a koozie. So 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. And like I said, people were gaga about it. Although this Anson, Ansel Elgort character, has he really done much since this? I looked at his filmography and instantly went like, nope, 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 nope. I haven't seen anything else that this guy's been in. Anyway, 92%. People were shitting their pants about this movie. What were they saying about it? Well, Alex, I, I was overjoyed when I fired up my my Run Tomato Quotes app, and the first name that I saw was a name I recognized. It's somebody that uh, that follows us on Twitter, and we follow him on Twitter, and now I'll be quoting him on the show. I don't know if he listens to the show, but <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll, I'll let him know ahead of time. Kip Mooney from College Movie Review. He said, I have a hard time believing I'll see another movie this year as consistently entertaining and jaw-dropping. Kip Mooney's jaw dropped when he watched Baby Driver. Kip and I uh, were both journalism majors in college at the University of North Texas, go mean green, and uh, would often yeah, just have film conversations before, after class, things of that nature. It was always a good time. And yeah, even just back and forths on the interwebs with him have always been entertaining. He's one of those guys. He he's not. He'll he'll kind of just like agree, even if he doesn't agree. You know the, those polite nods. He's not a <laughs> fucking dickhead like me that'll look at you <laughs> sideways. So, have you ever seen Kip Mooney's jaw drop? Uh, no. <laughs> he was a straight laced guy. He never. I never went partying with him or anything. So I, I never saw. He never saw the levels of depravity that I reached. So I never had a reason <laughs> to see him drop his jaw. All right. Well, well, Kip. Hopefully, uh, you enjoyed this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Leah Brady from AmovieGuy.com says Edgar Wright is cementing himself as one of our most pleasing directors of the past decade, and has created a baby that we all can love. It's kind of gross. That is. That's weird. B a b y baby. You tell him baby's coming. <laughs> Jesus, that's worse. Next. Leslie Combimail from Cinema Siren says, Stylish, beautifully executed, and slick as a 65 Mustang. 
I don't know anything about cars. Do you know what a 65 Mustang looks like? Is it a baby right, driver? I get what they're going for. Would you compare baby driver to a 65 Mustang or a, I don't know, 87 Oldsmobile? I don't really have a car to compare it to. A Honda Element, big and clunky. <laughs> well, let's close with Christian Harloff from Schmoes No. A really fun, interesting movie that proves Ansel Elgort is a star. They can think what they want to think. I'll tell you what, he's no he's no uh, Michael Sarah. And I think that maybe the reason why Scott Pilgrim is a better movie than Baby Driver is just that it has a better actor at the center of it. Can you imagine Baby Driver with Michael Sarah? No, but I want it. <laughs> All right, Alex, th- take us to Contrarian's Corner. My first note. Oh, so it's Drive. And I have that note. <laughs> three or four times throughout the rest of my notes here was that you would be more in tune and ear to the ground was that a a critique when this came out did people or at least was that a parallel people made i don't think that uh, many people had watched drive that went to watch baby driver i mean other than that lady that was mad about the drive trailer being misleading like baby driver was probably the movie that she wanted to watch (laughs) and she finally got it but I mean, I don't know. I guess there's some overlap between the the drive audience, the artsy, fartsy. I love Ryan Gosling staring off into space without saying anything for five minutes. And then the ADD filmmaking style of Edgar Wright. I mean, there has to be a little bit of an overlap uh, there. But I don't remember actually running into anybody who made that comparison, even though it's pretty obvious. I guess maybe it's hindsight, you know, like watching it, you know, all these years later and with... Uh, with driving sort of a a constant in our film conversations. Oh, yes. I, I mean, you know, you like drive. I don't really care for it much, but this does feel like, like the soulless version of drive. <laughs> Attractive dude drives a car. And cut. <laughs> Baby driver kicks off with our titular character, Baby, who some people call driver. And he's just a getaway driver, and he's helping out with a, a bank heist of some sort. He's surrounded by John Hamm, Monica, uh, Aza Gonzalez, and who's this in the opening? Uh, is it John Bernthal? That's the guy's name, right? Yep. Uh, returning to the Contrarians, of Yes. Course. Triumphant return, or maybe not so triumphant, because he's a glorified cameo. It's a shame, because, you know, after Grudge Match, you would think that he would only get starring roles going forward. Yeah, and... He's in the opening credits too, so like after that first sequence, I expected to see a lot more of him in this movie, but nope, he goes the way of the dodo. Do you think he's dead? Because he, this is something that I, I remember hearing people talk about. Because when he, the last thing he says as he's exiting is like, "If you don't see me again, I'm dead," and then we never see him again. Do you think that was Edgar Wright being like a little too clever? And more importantly, why does it matter? <laughs> uh, the this movie, if it's nothing else. It is absolutely not subtle. That, that's the. There's a lot of things this movie is. It is not subtle, and my immediate interpretation was when he didn't show back up, he was dead. <laughs> um, but like Drive, stylized opening with uh, a really go get him, really um, what's the phrase I'm looking for here? Blood pumping soundtrack and some really awesome driving to get us through. Gets back, and we learn this whole setup here is. Uh, Christopher Plummer, who plays Doc, is a mysterious kingpin in the uh, Atlanta area there, the crime syndicate. He has some cops on his side, other gang members, that type of thing. And basically is just 
they're calling the shots and he has some kind of relationship with a baby that no one really knows about. There's some kind of debt that he owes him. That's Mm -hmm. never really explained, but we find that baby's just working for him to pay off a debt. uh, And, you know, he's trying to get out of the crime life. He thinks he only has like one or two jobs left in this, this opening one being one of them. He is the coffee boy though. After every successful heist, he goes and gets coffee. He dances a lot. Edgar Wright certainly thought, that he, at least while writing and directing this movie, had assumed the spirit of Quentin Tarantino, just lacking the uh, the the fundamentals and the uh, facilities <laughs> to pull that off. So you get a lot of uh, scenes like the opening credits here, where it's one continuous shot that's you know some fashionable song plays over it and all the happenings around him are rhythmic to the song or just rhythmic in nature. And uh, the opening credits here is one continuous shot too, which is pretty cool. Uh, In the opening credits, uh, my notes here say with John Hamm and then Jamie Foxx gets the and credit. So my thought was they were both just going to kind of be glorified cameos, which is not the case at all. John Hamm's in this whole fucking movie. Jamie Foxx is pretty much in the, the whole second half. John Bernthal. John Bernthal is like in the credits as a full cast member. Yeah, he <laughs> gets the done. full Monty. Yeah, he's done after the the opening. What I didn't know is fucking Sky Ferreira is in this movie. When I saw her name pop up, I was like, "What?" So that to me, if I would have known she was in this, uh, in this, excuse me, I would have seen this way way sooner than I did. Who's Sky uh, Ferreira. Julio, I, yeah, I was about to say you have no idea who Sky Ferreira is. Uh, star of uh, Eli Roth's Green Inferno. Um, no, that's not what she's known for. Sky Ferreira is a musician slash model who, God, she hasn't had an album in like fucking eight years. Very mysterious, very, um, secretive is not the right word. She just definitely has like, um, an air of uncertainty about her. That's very interesting and intriguing. Uh, she plays in this movie. She is in the flashback sequences, baby's mom. Oh, like, man, I was yeah. going down the extremely limited list of female characters in this movie. I'm like, who is she? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even think about the mom. Yeah, she has been in a few other movies. The one I know is Green Inferno. She, uh, I'm actually a big fan of her music and also just her in general. She, in interviews and stuff, she's uh, has a very um, quiet charisma about her and kind of a captivating personality. And also, like I said, she's, had two two albums i think she had one ep and then shit yeah i I can't remember but i i know like her most recent album has been about to be released for like five years now so uh she's an interesting cat so when i saw her name she's on that counting crows schedule it's like there you feel like it i think she actually said that once in an interview (laughs) uh so when i saw her name i was like fuck yeah so that piqued my interest you know that reaction how the follow through when you finally saw what she was playing, did that uh, was it another fuck yeah or was it like a damn it, they did it wrong? Well, no. Based on the John Bernthal situation scenario where he showed up and then is killed, after I saw the first flashback, I'm like, oh, well, that's gonna fucking be it. You know, it's just like <laughs> that's all she's gonna be there for. She's there to be yelled at. I did know as soon as there was a tape labeled "Mom," I was like, oh, well, we're getting a Sky Ferreira song at some point in this movie. And that's at the end of spoiler at the end of the movie, the cover they play of um, easy like Sunday morning. That's Sky uh-huh. Ferreira singing. So I knew that was coming but in the moment. I was excited. Yeah. 
you know, we've talked about this with musicals on here before and even some of the more stylized shit we've done. This shit has to catch you early and catch you hard, but I was already like, is this going to be the whole fucking movie? Is this guy, you know, he does these bank heists and or he helps drive for these bank heists and then it's, you know, the in-between, the intervals given are him dancing to music and kind of being oblivious to everything else that's going on in life. And it turns out, yes, that's the movie. And falling in love. Let's not forget, he falls in love overnight with a, with a waitress. There, there is an attempt at substance there. You could say it's a, it's a heist movie wrapped around a love story or a love story wrapped around a heist movie. Uh, the problem is that the heist side of it is very repetitive and the, the love story is ludicrous. So it doesn't work. Not to say I wouldn't <laughs> fall in love with Lily James. Let's make that clear. But the way yeah. the movie presented it, no. My note here says I am Spartacus looking bitch because like I thought his glasses in the beginning made him look like um, <laughs> Tom Everett Thomas Scott. Everett. Yeah, dude, I, I I have that on my notes, too. I just said the poor man's Tom Everett Scott. But then as the movie went on, I'm like, I'm not going to say that because Tom Everett Scott is so much better than this. Tom Everett Scott is the poor man's Tom Everett Scott. That's the kind of range he has and <laughs> yes. the level of star power he brings to the table. We already mentioned Christopher Plummer, um, Baby, as we learned, that's his name, and he... I'm not sure if we learn it this early on, but we eventually do. He always has his earbuds in because he has uh, tinnitus. Is that the mm-hmm. that situation? That sounds like it really sucks. Uh, I know that ha- I had a friend whose dad had it, and it constantly in his ear sounded like um, he described it as crackling bacon. It just had cracking all day long in his ear, and I was like, God, that would suck. But yes, it comes in different forms. Some people have high-pitched humming or, you know, just like kind of low roars. and So he has these earbuds in at all times to kind of just keep his head level and drown out that noise. He lives with an old fellow by the name of, is it Joe? It's just Joe. His whole purpose in the movie is for the audience to feel nervous that something's going to happen to him. It's just so gimmick-heavy, too, because he has this guy... Uh, who he lives with, that he speaks sign language with, but he can put his hand on the the uh, speakers and be able to tell what song is playing. And then he has like this collection of radios and iPods in which he creates his own music. It's just so much. His tapes. It, that's what I was about to say, but this is hipster porn. This <laughs> is like, God, people who go down to Spider House Coffee in Austin and drink or like the people that... E sixth. This I don't know how many listeners we have in Austin, but I'm not trying to be mean. If that's what you do, or <laughs> watching this movie, the last time I actually made an effort to go out during South by Southwest, it was like people all like this, and I was like, "Man, I'm a hipster, but uh, <laughs> this is a bit far for me." I was starting to understand and sympathize with Ryan Gosling and Drive. I was like, "Yes, just don't talk to anybody. Stare off into the distance for five minutes at a time." <laughs> My problem is that if you want the aesthetic of the tapes, okay, well then just set this movie at a time before iPods, at a time before digital editing, or make him so poor that he can't afford, you know, a computer and editing software, and so he does it old school, you know, with the tapes. There is absolutely no reason why anybody would edit on tapes, you know, or record on tapes. This is not like film. There it is to be a pretentious bitch. Exactly. You do it. <laughs> He doesn't even like I would have as much as I would have made fun of it. I would have preferred if he was like 
it, they just showed us his vinyl collection. Because so I'll be like, all right, well, that at least that's that's incredibly pretentious, but that happens in the real world. Do you know a single person that has a collection of tapes? Not just tapes like uh, music, but tapes that they are creating. It's not even that they went to like a flea market or. You know, they bought like an old Bruce Springsteen tape on eBay. <laughs> no, this is just tapes that he creates. He He's choosing to use technology from the past. Like if you were to make a movie today, Alex, you wouldn't shoot it in the VHS. And I know you like VHS like as a format and you have your, you know, a VHS player and everything. But you're not creating new content in VHS because technology has moved past that. And so the idea that this guy is cool, I mean, it's just not practical. I, I it's, No. It just throws you out the story because... It just makes you question, like, what am I missing, right? Like, is there, are we like in an alternative universe where we can listen to music on iPods, but we can only edit audio the old-fashioned way with, on tapes? It's just, it, you know, in the end, by the time that everything is, you know, it's all said and done, the the sad truth is that the only reason that he listens to tapes, that he has that collection of tapes, is for the visual of it, so that they can, towards the end of the movie, when he's when they find his tapes, they can just throw those tapes on the table, and it's a pile of tapes, which I guess, visually, is a little more impactful than if they just threw, like, a CD. <laughs> like, this is all his files, a flash drive. And that's not enough. I mean, I would expect more from Edgar Wright. Really annoying. These are the types of things that work in a movie like Scott Pilgrim that are based in this almost like science fiction-y type world and the fantastical elements of that movie. It's like a video game, for Christ's sake. Uh, we see flashbacks to, like I mentioned, the aforementioned Sky Ferreira uh, and Baby's dad getting killed in a car wreck. I don't know what the timetable or timeline of this movie is supposed to be, but they're driving like a station wagon and dressed like it's late 70s, early 80s, but he's got an iPod. So definite Nightmare on Elm Street remake yep. vibes here of like <laughs> trying to make 2004 seem like 1956. It's uh, very, very strange. It, based on your injection there, Julio, or interjection, excuse me, it sounds like you uh, agree with that. Yes. Uh, it's a shame that we didn't get a shot of the, the cops just kind of like looking over the the scene of the accident, you know, all like with trench coats and fedoras and uh... <laughs> smoking just big cigars. Yes. <laughs> we see that uh, baby goes into a local diner where he's kind of sweet on one of the waitresses, schmoozing, smitten. <laughs> so, yes, it's drive just with a younger kid. <laughs> so Lily James, the, the aforementioned waitress, have you seen her in anything else? Do you know her from from anything? No. It's one of your... Y'all's young new actors that I don't, I'm not familiar with. <laughs> well, it, it's a shame that this has been your your first exposure to Lily James because she's actually a good actress, just not in this movie. And it's weird that Edgar Wright would take the one female character of note. I mean, you know, there's two, but re really, Lily James is the main one, and cast uh, a young emerging talent. You know, she's been in. Uh, the, the most recent Cinderella remake, the live action remake, and she was in that Winston Churchill movie that finally got Gary Oldman an Oscar. She was she was in it. She was his nurse, I think, or his assistant. She was great in it. She is so good, Alex, that they cast her as the young version of the Meryl Streep character in the Mamma Mia sequel. Like that's the level of talent that we're talking about. Oh like she's, she's young Meryl Streep. You wouldn't know any of that from watching her in this movie. She is like in in a world that's uh, already kind of hyper real, where everybody's kind of like larger than life, and you're like, yeah, that's not a real person. That's not a real person. She comes across as 
fake, <laughs> which you wouldn't think. So you think that any sort of performance would fit in this sort of crazy reality that they've created. But she just, I don't believe a single thing that comes out of her mouth. <laughs> Did you have that problem? Did you feel like she was still auditioning when she was just reading sides and she just got in that day? All her, her, her flirting with baby is really the... To me, it's the worst part of the movie. Uh, I all their scenes together, I found just borderline intolerable. Uh, it really there was parts of it which was like this fucking asshole think he's James Dean, uh, or and again this could all fall on Edgar Wright where the direction is, you know, you're supposed to be Humphrey Bogart and you're uh, Ingrid Bergman and you know, so ham it up like a movie from the '40s and you know you have these you're both just madly in love with each other, but you can't because of your lives paths. And now at every part of this, the interactions with the two lovebirds in this, it was just like, it has a Juno effect. It's like, this is not how fucking people talk. Yep. And like the introduction of it where she's got a name tag on, it says Jonathan. Um, <laughs> she's like, I just started here. Oh, so that dress you wore belonged to some dude named Jonathan, and I mean that's possible, but the way the the scene is framed, it just made it seem very silly, and again, just kind of unrealistic Juno type dialogue. It was um, a bit much for me. We've we've established that not everybody can pull off. Very few people can pull off Juno dialogue. Not everybody is uh, Rain Wilson or uh, Jason Bateman, Jennifer <laughs> yes. Garner. Yeah. It's bad on the dialogue level. It's it's also frustrating on a more uh, mundane level because she is the worst waitress in the world and very rarely does she get called out on it. You know, she's devoting her attention to this guy that's not ordering anything. Halfway through their conversation, she just sits on the booth and starts talking to him. It, it's like, never. It doesn't happen. Like, maybe if it was the middle of the night and it's like three in the morning, it's the graveyard shift and nobody's there. Your name's Baby. B-A-B-Y, baby. We have a new job. Christopher Plummer calls in. Baby, he needs him for a new job. I don't remember the character's name, but Christopher Plummer describes him as the man that puts Asian in home invasion. I thought that was a pretty good line, actually. <laughs> he comes up, and he's trying to, you know, mad dog baby and try to false him and whatnot. And he's like, you have a tattoo on your throat that says hat. And he says, yeah, it used to say hate, but to try to open up my opportunity for job employments, I covered up the E. He's like, how's that going for you? And he says, who doesn't like hats? I thought that was a really funny line, actually. <laughs> that was a Tarantino rewrite. No, that's not Tarantino. That's like Kevin Smith punching up the dialogue. I immediately said, is that Flea? Because he was not in the opening credits. And you know me, I have to survey the whole scene and see what's going on. And his face looked kind of not uh, distorted, per se, but like his, his character had like, you know, a fucked up nose and whatnot. So... Uh, I waited till the end credits, but it did confirm that it was Flea. And when they showed a close-up of him in the getaway, I was like, yeah, that's Flea. So there you go. From the Coen brothers to Edgar Wright. <laughs> from closing Woodstock 99 to Edgar Wright. I say from Rugrats to Edgar Wright. But yeah, I guess the Coen brothers also. Yeah, this new crew. So it's it's Flea. It's the Asian guy. Uh, and, Jamie uh, Foxx. And Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx playing the... the the usual badass persona that at this point is just... I don't get anything out of watching Jamie Foxx play some sort of badass character. We saw him in Django. After that, just retire it. Just do something else. You know, you've seen those memes, which probably should be retired by now also. But, you know, the whole, like, tired, wired thing. You know, it'd be like, tired, Jamie Foxx playing a badass. Wired, Flea playing a heist criminal. <laughs> Unfortunately, Flea doesn't last. He lasts about as long as John Bernthal in this movie. But we're stuck with Jamie Foxx until the very end, pretty much. Jamie Foxx, who plays Bats, uh, Leon, as we eventually learn is his name, he becomes 
I guess he's the bad guy, despite the fact that what these people are doing is not good to begin with. But he's the the front man uh, of the new crew. They're going to go on a heist. They're going to hit um, shit. You and I know him as a Garda truck, Brinks truck, <laughs> uh, whatever the truck that delivers the banks to the money in this fictional Atlanta area is. The next morning, the best joke of the movie. They call for disguise for the heist to be the Michael Myers mask, and one of the guys gets the masks, and it's. Austin Powers. He's like, this is Mike Myers. When jokes like that happen, Julio, to me, it's always a 50-50 if you'll find it funny or not. I found it to be the high point of the movie. I'm curious if you found it funny at all. Well, Alex, I I hate to inform you that the trailer featured that scene as its closing beat. So I probably found it funny in the trailer. By the time it happened in the movie, I was over it. I'd seen it at least five times. It's a shame. That falls in with the giving shit away in your trailer. The What we were talking about with Halloween Kills recently. Some people are upset that it gave away too much, which I don't agree with. But in this situation, that works out fine for me because I, I never saw a fucking thing about this movie. Just except the intense um, positive praise that was piled onto it. This heist goes awry. It looks like there's... Uh, I, I can't tell because it's not explained if it's supposed to be just kind of an undercover security guard at the bank or just... A good guy with a gun, as our <laughs> disgrace of a former president would have said. I think it's the it's the latter. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, he cuts him off at the pass, and they engage in this high-speed chase. At one point, it looks like Jamie Foxx is going to kill the dude, and Baby puts a stop to that, because I guess Baby has you know, his one rule, a la Batman. He has his <laughs> convictions, and so they get away, but it was a close one. They, they get away, but it definitely wasn't the, the way they planned it. They end up having to steal another car downtown, and Jamie Foxx like wants to kidnap a baby, and this is never mentioned again at all in the the movie. Yeah, what the fuck, man? <laughs> it's a. Uh, I guess I guess baby has two bastions on his moral code: uh, don't kill anyone and don't kidnap babies, because it, baby is the one that takes the baby out of the car and hands it over to the the woman that they're stealing the car from. And this is already where. Uh, Joseph back at the the apartment he stays at is like, bitch, what are you doing? He's like, you're a young kid. You're going to end up getting killed. And this was supposed to be the last job, right? This was going to be how baby got out. Yeah, because he tells him, I'm done. I'm done. And and Joe tells him, Joe knows that baby has, I don't know, you know, a whole like gazillion dollars hidden under the floorboards because he sees him every time that he, you know, finishes a job. Christopher Plummer doesn't take everything. He he lets him keep a little bit. And he's been stacking those bills. So, you know, it looks like he has a pretty good amount of money put away. And yet, Joe goes, <laughs> when when Baby tells him that he's done, Joe basically says, well, you know, you should deliver pizza now. <laughs> yeah. He says, wouldn't you feel better just bringing people joy? Which I kind of balked at that line. I was like... Uh, Bacher scoffed is the word I was looking for there. Uh, but I thought about it and I was like, no, there's never been a time where I got pizza delivered to my front door and I was upset. So I <laughs> completely get where Joe's coming from there. Okay. So if the whole thing is that with great power comes great responsibility and he's such a good driver that he shouldn't let those talents go to waste. Well, delivering pizza is a little small minded, you know, Joe an ambulance driver. Oh, man, that's great. That is that is actually great. Joe should have said that, hey, man, how about you volunteer at the fire station or whatever, you know? Make a difference. Yeah, I was, you always watch these movies and you think, like, 
man, can you imagine if the police force had someone that could drive like this? Because in the end, you know, they all the cops always end up looking like dumbasses. Even like you know, I keep making the allusions to drive. Even in that, he he outwits the cops constantly. And in this, it's the same thing. You would think. Uh, to, again, one last time, I guess, to pay homage to Norm MacDonald, he had that joke about, uh, I read a story about a 17-year-old kid who stole a plane, crashed it, and survived. Why don't we make the plane out of that kid? And that's kind of like, <laughs> when I watch this, I'm like, why don't the cops just catch him and then make him drive for them? And A bad guy will never get away again. And that's Amazing. what Joseph should have told him. Go be a cop. It's not hard in this country. <laughs> To make sure those words aren't misconstrued, I should say it's not hard to become a cop. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's weird. So did you get the feeling, even though I mean, I'm sure you as I, you know, were probably aware that we were like maybe halfway through the movie. But I got this very distinct feeling that uh, the story was over. Christopher Plummer actually tells him, hey, you paid your debt. Thank you. And then, you know, he gets a job delivering pizzas. He asks, what's her name on a date? Like, this is the kind of thing that happens at the end of the movie. And uh, if it's meant to be the beginning of something else, then it's happening too late in the movie. Because, like I said, we're almost halfway through. Uh, did you feel like it was like, man, this is this is it. Like, credits are going to roll because everything everything's done. Honest to God, yes. I rented this movie on YouTube, Julio. Uh, do you own this? Is that how you watched it? Yes. Okay. Blu-ray, DVD? Blu-ray, Redbox Purchase. So I rented this on YouTube because uh, it was the easiest of all. It's not streaming anywhere currently. It was the easiest of all of them. So my point to this, as we get around there, the, the scenic route, exactly what you said when you said, hey, you're done. I <laughs> went to my little mouse gimmick, the little pad with your finger in the middle of it, and I just did the thing where I moved it to see where it was in the movie. I was like, my God, is there like an hour and 15 minutes that have already gone by? Nope. Still had well over an hour left in this. So I was like, oh, he's going to get pulled back in. But on his way out, his last thing, he has to get rid of the body of the Asian dude. He uh, crossed the wrong guy. He crossed Jamie Foxx and the Jamie Foxx took his coffee. <laughs> Just to prove how much of a badass he is. More 1940s style romance and dialogue in the uh, the diner. This is where my note is. It says, does this kid think he's James Dean? Uh, interspersed with more shots of Sky Ferreira, it's clear that Baby was close with his mother. Uh, we find out that she worked at this diner that he went to, but she was her desired career was to be that of a, a singer and a musician. And so that's kind of what she did part-time. So that ties in. And no wonder he premiered it at South by Southwest. That's the story of, <laughs> it's the plight of the the Austin resident. Is <laughs> So he takes a, what's her name? Lily James? Um, yeah. Deborah. Takes Deborah out to dinner at a very fancy restaurant. And then we find out that their meal's been paid for by a gentleman. And we, um, <laughs> the shot of Christopher Plummer lurking in a dark, dimly lit bar. <laughs> this has not aged well. <laughs> yeah, it took it took almost half the movie, but we finally got there. The character Christopher Plummer is playing kind of a bled over real life or rather real life bled over the character that Christopher Plummer was playing and, and he just became sinister yeah he pays for this meal takes him out back and he says you know you're not done you know our debt's through but you're not through with this you've been my driver for every job that I've done so you have to stay with me and if you don't you know what that means he even threatens you know do you want to do this or do you want to end up in a wheelchair 
summoning all the power of Brian Cranston in Drive because that was his whole story. He got his pelvis broke for not doing business the right way. So he's back on it. And there's a big job that he wants to pull off. And he takes Baby to the post office. He's going to rob a post office. We find out the entire idea here is they're going to steal money orders, which is like one of the most white trash crimes I've ever heard of. <laughs> uh, he takes Baby to case the joint, and he makes Baby take in his, his, his son or his nephew? Nephew. Nephew. And what's the little kid's name? Sam? I don't know. He's a little blonde kid. That I mean, I guess we've seen worse when it comes to child actors, but also we've seen so much better recently on the sixth sense so now that's that's i'm sorry but that's the bar i measure all kid actors from now on it's like are they as good as Haley joe osmond no okay well they're bad then because he's doing the precautious kid thing and it's just fucking annoying i just i know some people find it cute but he takes him in i guess the idea is that he's going to make him make baby look you know a little more unassuming because he has a kid with him while he's casing the joint but then the the real haha joke is that the kid is trained to really do a better job than than baby at figuring out how many cameras and how many employees how many guards and all that stuff i don't care oh isn't it funny that it's like a little kid that's acting wise beyond his years no it's not funny it's just annoying i mean that's when i feel the movie kind of like poking me like really hard and just going like but isn't this funny it's just like <laughs> trying really hard more so than uh the driving, which is also, you know, the, the entire baby character is like, isn't this cool? And then that kid is like, isn't this funny? Yeah, it's just a bit much. We, we were talking recently, or n- not recently, but I was uh, revisiting one of our episodes about, and you were just talking about how much you can't stand precocious children. And, you know, just kind of <laughs> uh, kids played for laughs, but also for like professorial statements. And so I was watching this like, oh, man, this this hits all of Julio's boxes right here. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I should be glad that we never we never see the kid again. That's that's it. That's his one scene. He's like John Bernthal. So Christopher Plummer's really heavy. Doc's heavy with the threats here. He brings up uh, his girlfriend. He brings up uh, Joe. He knows where he lives. It's not good. But they're getting ready. So the job now is kind of a conglomerate of what we've had up until this point, which is Baby, Jamie Foxx, John Hamm, John Hamm's side piece, uh, Darling. They're all getting ready for this. The, the job they're going to have to pull off. We get a bonding moment with John Hamm and Baby. What's John Hamm's name? Buddy. Buddy. That's right, because it all pays off with fuck you, Buddy, at the end of the movie. So they, they're listening to Queen together, and Jamie Foxx is just kind of like, what fucking white people? And Jamie Foxx has <laughs> the awesome line of, because uh, he says that his ears should be open, not listening to music, and he has the tremendous line of, you don't need a score for a score. And that's one of those that, you know, you want to talk about, perfect storm i understand how this movie was written the intentions it was written with and despite those that line still like that line is awesome in spite of itself for what you know it was supposed to be this kind of cool hipster line and jamie fox just delivers it with such conviction and obviously he's an incredible actor so it's good um but the first leg of this plan is they have to go acquire some arms somewhere this is like a fucking desert yeah so it's drive (laughs) <laughs> did you feel this was an unnecessary side quest that was just there to pad the runtime? Because you could remove this entire trip to get the arms and get in the shoot or whatever, and the story ends up being the same. I mean, I guess because of it, they, they're like, well, now we really have to do it really fast before the cops find out that we killed a bunch of people. But But overall, it just felt unnecessary to me and the movie is not you know it goes over 90 minutes so it already broke the, the maddest rule oh. <laughs> so. B- 
buddy. The, this movie could have been at least 35 minutes shorter. What purpose does this serve? So what happens is they get here to score some arms. There's not Wallace Shawn there in a white suit, and Bats recognizes them as cops, and so they open fire on them. So then Baby, Darling, Buddy, and Bats all have firearms. They kill this horde of police, or so they think. They blow the place up, which doesn't explain how some of these cops live to yeah. a later part of the movie. And then they just go back and they're like, oh, that sucks. And Christopher Plummer's like, well, the job's off now. Those were my dirty cops, so we can't do this. There's going to be too much heat on us. And Jamie Foxx is like, well, let's just do the job anyway. And they're like, okay, so what was the fucking point of that entire thing? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because you think that it's setting up some sort of... Uh... I guess, a sort of confrontation down the line between Jamie Foxx and Christopher Plummer. Because my instinct was to think that, oh, one of them is lying, right? Either Jamie Foxx is lying about those guys were cops, being cops, and he killed them for a different reason. Or Christopher Plummer is lying. Those were not his cops, but there was something else going on. Maybe maybe he's an informant. You know, maybe he's setting them up. I, I thought there was some sort of intrigue going on there. But no, it has nothing to do with with anything that happens later. It's just they could have done the heist and that was it. You know, the story would play out the same. On top of that, I have to say I was already annoyed at the movie because I felt like the first half of, of the movie had sort of established or led me to believe at least that Christopher Plummer had a wide array of options when he was uh, putting his teams together. I was hoping that we would never get a repeat. He has a, a, a crew for that first. It's going to be like a revolving door of A-listers. Right. Wouldn't that be cool? Or at least, you know, better than what we got. Because you get a full team, uh, you know, for that first job. Then the second team has a completely different crew. And then this team would have a completely different crew as well. So, you know, you get more people in. You could have brought, I don't know, maybe had one team that's all women. I don't know. There's so many cool actors. If you're going for cool, then do something like that. If you're really trying to be like Tarantino, then just give us some uh, some obscure picks, some some deep cuts. Cast Travolta as one of the people there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, you know what would have been like super like bomb is if they had Ryan Gosling as one of them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and he but he doesn't speak. He doesn't say anything <laughs> except for except for. Shit, like the, when they're having the, the, they have to stay the night at the warehouse. There's like this part where Baby is like pacing back and forth because he's nervous. And Ryan Gosling, the only thing he says is, you remind me of me when I was younger. That's all you need right there. <laughs> Once again, you're making the case that Edgar Wright should check with you next time he writes a movie. Not from the beginning, but let, let you know, he should let you do the final pass on the script. Also, we've got to mention this scene here with like the shootout with the, the dirty cops and whatnot. You need that fucking... Remember the movies where we'd have to put signs up at the theater? Like, hey, if you have motion sickness or if your stomach is eerily agitated by erratic movements, you know, beware. Because there's this shot in that scene where the camera's just like going on this perpetual wheel of motion just faster and faster around everybody. And it's the same thing I said about the entire scene. Like, what's the fucking point of this? Thank God I wasn't watching in an actual theater. I was just watching my monitor. (laughs) The old, uh, if you threw up during Cloverfield, you might want to rethink this one. <laughs> so after the job, it's important that we call out that they stop at the diner. Baby, you know, does not want to stop there. So that's why Jamie Foxx says, you know, we have to. 
so they're there to kind of collect what their thoughts are going to be, how they're going to move out from here before they go back to Christopher Plummer, which we already covered. But the significance of this is that they are introduced to the Deborah character. John Hamm and his girlfriend, uh, Darling, kind of write it off to nothing. But Jamie Foxx, of course, in very classy, very non-chauvinistic style, says, you know that bitch? <laughs> and so this, of course, comes to pay off later when they figure out that he does, in fact, know her. It's a but very how, aggressive how, scene. How did they not figure out then? Because Baby is the worst liar. It's like, uh, no. And he keeps looking at her. <laughs> Fucking baby has such a terrible poker face because he's just got like this angry boo-boo face the entire time. Like, you know, someone who <laughs> took his PlayStation away for the weekend. You know, his, uh, he had all his homework done and then they took his PlayStation away. He just looks, I'm mad. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I, I Actually, I'm glad that we came back to this diner scene. It's it's a good spot to talk about the, the John Hamm character because Jamie Foxx, I mean, I'm not crazy about his performance in this movie. I, I just think it's just a lot more of the same. But he has this one scene where he basically dissects the John Hamm character in a very uh, effective way. It kind of, it made me laugh because the entire time, I mean, if you guys have seen Baby Driver, I mean, the, the the John Hamm look, it just doesn't, it doesn't jibe with the John Hamm persona that we're used to. You know what I mean? Like he's he looks like a an older guy that's trying to be cool. He's hanging out with the with the young. He really does. It's it's kind of hard because God knows how much we love John Hamm. And I was watching this. I was like, dude, you're John Hamm. Like the you know, haircut, the, <laughs> the, the, the five o'clock shadow. The, the, yeah, yeah, the perennial five o'clock shadow, and just you know, twenty years younger than me, girlfriend. Just yep, like, exactly, exactly. It, it, I mean, you've you're seen, the man as is. Yeah, yeah. You, the, I mean, John Hamm looking like John Hamm, he wouldn't need to put on this act to to feel good about himself because he's John Hamm. And so it just it just feels really awkward and it reminded me of uh this other man. I just keep bringing up memes this episode. But you know the the Steve Buscemi meme where he's like with the backwards cap and the backpack is like, how are you doing, fellow that's oh, John Hamm in How are you this doing movie. fellow kids? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's John Hamm in this movie. He's just Constantly settling up to to baby is like oh well let me listen to what you what you have in your iPod it's just awkward and the fact that Jamie Fox in this diner scene kind of calls him out on it not as much as I would have liked to to where I would say oh the movie's self aware about how ridiculous this whole thing is but he does tell him hey you're clearly going through uh, this is the worst possible midlife crisis <laughs> that you could have. And that's all there is to it. You're not a badass. You're just a dude going through a midlife crisis. I wish the movie was more about this, about breaking down the psychology of the people that go into these heights. Instead of spending so much time on the chases and the, the stupid romance that is trite and the dumb threats and all that stuff, just make it this sort of anthology. You have different crews for every job and every every job kind of allows you to explore the psychology of the people that go on these adventures and and you have baby the driver as the sort of like silent uh, observer that eventually gets you know also gets a moment of introspection at the end that's what this movie should have been you know and, and you can still shoot it cool and you can have the the music and the the cuts and all that stuff but you need to give me some meat. In this moment, the diner is the only moment where I felt that there was some sort of attempt at looking beyond the surface uh, when it comes to the characters. Far more interesting discussion here being had than what's actually on on film. It's making me frustrated, actually, to think about like what we're piecing <laughs> together here and what we actually got. So, jobs off, jobs on. I think Baby thought he was just going to get away really easily because he told um, Deborah road trip. 
2 a.m. You know, they're going to make their grand escape. His escape is, of course, thwarted. John Hamm thinks he tells him he's going for coffee and he just believes it. And then <laughs> Jamie Foxx shows up. He's like, what are you all doing? Watching Gilmore Girls or some shit. <laughs> and and so he says, you know, I found your tape recorder. What's this for? This is kind of well pulled off because he says, no, no, no. I just use that to make music. And they're both just like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because if you were told that, it would be the dumbest thing you've ever heard. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, we, I don't know if we've mentioned. I don't think we've actually mentioned that he's recording conversations uh, that are taking place in uh, Christopher Plummer's hideout. So, I mean, I wouldn't blame anybody for thinking that he's an informant, that he's just he's just a plant there gathering evidence. But then what he does with those recordings, I mean, I guess we kind of heard it already, but this is the scene of him playing those recordings, you know, for Christopher Plummer and the rest of the gang. I got this serious vibe of, um, you know, like these YouTube videos where they take a, a, a famous scene from a movie or a TV show but then they replace the audio with something that's really silly. That's that's kind of like what mm. it felt when I was watching this because everybody's reaction, you know, there's all these close-ups, Christopher Plummer, John Hamm, uh, John Hamm's girlfriend, <laughs> darling, Jamie Foxx. Everybody's like kind of like looking mesmerized, perplexed, confused, angry. But what we're listening to, the audio is just so silly. Uh, what do you call that? Like scrubbing? Uh, you know, he basically took a conversation, but, you know, he played DJ with it. It's just so silly. Was he slow? No. No. Was he slow? Retarded means slow. Was he slow? No. What the hell else more do you need Is that music? screwed, baby. Yeah. Do you do you like that, Alex? Is that is that is that your jam? Or or no. are you like me too old for that shit? Yeah, instrumental screwed tracks like that, not not necessarily my my forte. There there was a time, but not anymore. And especially fucking seven hours into this movie, it wasn't the time for that. <laughs> so he insists he's driving tomorrow. They they take all the tapes away from his apartment and uh sadly, unfortunately, they rough up Joe. They listen to the tapes. It's played for comedy, goes on way too long, figures out he's obviously not recording them. So Christopher Plummer threatens to take him off the job, and Baby insists, no, I'm driving tomorrow. And so the job is on. They get there, and it begins just like they planned it. Uh, one of the tellers coming in is who Baby spoke to the previous day. She makes, you know, she locks eyes with him, and uh, he shakes his head no, like get the fuck away from here. So she goes to get a security guard as the, the heist is beginning. She brings a security guard. She basically leads him to the, down the gallows. He just shows up and gets shot in the chest by Jamie Foxx. And they jump in the car, and Baby just doesn't go anywhere. He just stares at Jamie Foxx, despite having a gun in his face. And Jamie Foxx tells him to move, and so he floors it into this construction truck ahead of him that looks to have, I don't know, rebar or something coming out the back that he drives it so hard that it, of course, impales Jamie Foxx on it. And so now the race is on on foot. And my God, does this keep going and going and going, this rhythmic hunt. It becomes Baby Runner. <laughs> it betrays its its gimmick. It's no longer Baby Driver, it's Baby Runner. And on top of that, our bad guy that has been built up as, as the baddest of the bad over the past hour or so, he's gone. That's it. That was it for Jamie Foxx. Like, okay, kudos for the, the shock value, I guess. Nobody saw that coming. Everybody probably thought that we were we were in with Fox until the very end and the, the climax was going to be Baby versus Jamie Foxx. So, yeah, it is surprising 
that with, I don't know, 30 minutes of movie, <laughs> Jamie Foxx is done. But it's also very unsatisfying because then the movie is basically forced to create a new super bad guy kind of out of nowhere. Didn't you feel that? <laughs> that suddenly John Hamm's descent into madness was very sudden. Yeah. So stupid. That's like even. he was like the cool dad this whole movie. Yeah. And now he's fucking Jason Voorhees here in the last <laughs> act of the movie. Yep. It's like why couldn't he have died through some series of happenstance and then it still because Jamie Foxx is clearly established as the bad guy. He's the one that's gonna hunt him. But everything's fucking rhythmic. The the footsteps on the ground, the car crashes, the bullets, it's all to the beat of music and whatnot. The chase eventually leads to the parking lot of this mall where Darling is gunned down and killed. Uh, presumably, John Hamm is apprehended or killed. We don't know, but Baby gets away. Baby goes back to the apartment where Joe is, picks him up, grabs all the money, and grabs you know what he needs. And he makes a call from here to the diner to say, let Deborah know uh, Baby's coming. And, then and the, the they... boss, the manager, goes, Baby. And he says, B-A-B-Y, Baby. There you go. They actually do the B-A-B-Y thing more than once in this movie which i find baffling that they thought to do that line to begin with and that then they double down on it. it's like no it's gonna be a running thing i'll, I'll give this to uh i guess the the john ham losing his shit during the shootout if you were dating the super hot latina badass and she got gunned down in front of you you would probably lose your shit maybe not permanently but for a good while and I'm not like uh, reducing her character to just her appearance because the movie already did that for me. <laughs> That's uh, uh, what's her name? Elsa Gonzalez. Eza E I Z A. Eza Gonzalez is super attractive, and that's pretty much all there is to her. I think she she chews gum. That's the other thing that she does in this movie. <laughs> when she's hot. Yeah, that's the thing. Like she's hot. She chews gum. She is a uh, she's an accessory. To John Hams. I mean, if she had been a character that we actually cared about instead of a character that John Ham cared about, uh, I think that her death would have been a lot more meaningful. What if she was the one that had the real connection with uh, Baby, and uh, and John Ham never trusted Baby, and then she gets killed, and you could say that it's Baby's fault, and that explains. Then John Ham goes like, "I knew it, I knew it. I'm gonna get this fucker." You know, that's more believable. That's a better transition. It wouldn't be as surprising, I guess, but it would make more sense, which is really, you know, the more important of those two things. So, what I'm trying to say, bottom line, Edgar Wright did a disservice to every female character that we had in here. This might be the best scene in the movie here. I got just a scotch ahead of myself, but when he drops off Joseph at the... He finds an old folks home for him and drops him off on the front doorstep. I mean, the premise is ridiculous. I was about to it's say. Like you hear like st <laughs> stories in the old days of you know people that drop babies off at the, the foot of orphanages and shit like that. Not a grown um, man. <laughs> he's a fucking grown-ass man. Yeah, exactly. And he has to record a message for him. The sentiment is there, but then... You know, police chopper flies over, and this is where like the baby becomes like Michael Myers or like, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say Jason because that's what fucking John Hamm becomes. But this whole thing that starts at this point in the movie where he's in one scene and then it cuts back and he's gone. You know, he's in one frame and then cuts back and he's vanished. But, you know, you can't catch him. What the <laughs> fuck? Come on. Yeah, no, th this scene is weird. I, I. I get what you're saying. It's probably again one of those rare emotional moments in the movie. I mean, we're human. 
the guy playing Joe is a good actor, so of course he he manages to transcend the shortcomings of the screenplay and actually make you believe that yeah he cares for this kid and all the stuff. But it's it's really silly because uh, the thing with the helicopter. So I guess the helicopter is flying around because there's been this major shootout and they're just the police you know searching everywhere for for uh, the people that were involved and uh, they shine the spotlight on. <laughs> on this old man that's being abandoned in front of the home. I mean, that looks suspicious enough, but then I think, doesn't Joe give the, the helicopter a thumbs up? It says, good luck. He's, he tells it good luck, yeah. <laughs> what the hell? So Baby gets to the diner to, to scoop up Deborah and rescue her, because that's, you know, all women in this movie need a man to do that for him. And this is case one of John Ham Lives, all caps in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Baby Driver part six. John Hamm lives. <laughs> he, My note here says, why is this movie still going? <laughs> yeah, this should be it, right? He he goes he goes away. That's it. He he gets he gets Deborah. They hop in his car and they, they just go away. Roll credits. Save us from the embarrassing last twenty minutes or so of this movie. So they have it out with John Hamm. The cops show up, but it's because one of them has to take a piss. Uh, baby shoots John Ham, and they take off. The other cop points John Ham shoots him. Yeah, <laughs> and he it shoots him in the shoulder. You know, if he was really trying to get rid of him from point blank range when he's not looking, you could shoot him in the back of the head, dude, or just shoot him again. <laughs> you know, he shoots yeah. him in the shoulder. John Ham falls. Just shoot him again. Shoot him again and again. I mean, you're ready. You're in it. So might as well commit. Put him down. John Ham has the. Awesome line. This is how you know he's just we're we're off the rails. We're like uh you know, he's uh John Hamm is is, is Fonzie jumping over the shark at this moment. Because he's like lying on the floor, bleeding out, and he goes, Oh man, I wish I knew the line, but he's basically it's his his Mickey I'm coming to get you moment. He's like, Run, baby, because I'm coming for you. Or I don't know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, he's something like you can't run forever, baby. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> you Awful. can't drive, but you can't hide. You can't keep running, baby! There's no escape! Baby and Deborah steal a car from the twins from Spring Breakers. <laughs> I don't really know why why they're in this, other than they're the twins from Spring Breakers, I guess. Uh, he shows back up at Christopher Plummer's warehouse, where Christopher Plummer is packing up. He's about to get the fuck out of town. <laughs> and he says, I need one of my tapes. And of course, we as the audience immediately know that's the, the tape labeled Mom. He says, I can't give those to you. And then Deborah shows up and kind of, you know, he has his money orders, too. He offers to give them to him. And Deborah shows up and she's like, come on, we got to go. And Christopher Plummer just, I guess, gets mad at how cute they are and allows him to take the tape with him that he needs. <laughs> All of a sudden, Christopher Plummer, who had, this is his arc in the movie. He's kind of an unimpressive criminal during the first half. Then halfway through, he becomes a complete son of a bitch. He threatens Baby with ruining his life. Uh, hurting his foster father and hurting his his girlfriend and then in the climax of the movie he turns out to be a teddy bear like he says something like yeah i was in love once <laughs> okay <laughs> should have should have said something sooner could have saved us all a whole lot of trouble uh he actually basically gives up his life in order to allow baby and deborah to escape at one point though when baby's trying to convince him to give him what he wants he says you and i are supposed to be a team and <laughs> christopher Plummer says stop quoting monsters inc or you know stop using monsters inc lines with me it's sam's favorite movie i'm sick of it which i i thought that was nice <laughs> yeah they he takes them down to the parking garage and as soon as they open the door 
he says run another breaking bad moment you know when um <laughs> is that the end of the second season where Walt, i think this is the third season but yeah i know what you're talking third, about yeah he runs over those drug dealers and tells jesse to run uh and this uh, jesse fucking listened here they, they just kind of watch what happens it's some of those cops that we thought got blown up earlier there and they get in a gunfight where christopher Plummer guns them down he gets shot several times in the process though almost for comedic effect it's like i thought i told you to run uh, John Hamm lives as John Hamm pulls up in a cop car and starts playing the Queen song he and Baby bonded over. So, so, so this is uh, Baby Driver Seven. John Hamm takes Manhattan. I guess the first go around at the diner we could say is Baby Driver Five: A New Beginning, and then this is <laughs> Baby Driver Six: John Hamm lives. And yeah, this, so this would be Baby Driver Seven: The New Blood, and so he. <laughs> So he mows down Christopher Plummer in this car, kills him instantly, and then it turns into basically this fucking demolition derby between the the two of them to the point where finally it looks like Baby's conquered him by pushing the John Ham's car off this the end of this parking garage to fall you know <laughs> six stories or so to his fiery death. But it is not to be, as this is, I guess yeah, this would be Baby Driver Part Eight. John Ham takes Atlanta. <laughs> Is the song still going? I don't remember. No, because at this point it's all rhythmic, and right before he gets killed, he does the thing. He's like, "You took what I love. You took what uh, I love most, baby, from me. So I'm gonna take what you love most." And he shoots the gun by both his ears to, you know, theoretically or potentially deafen him. And then, shit, I forget how he actually gets pushed off. I think he gets shot by baby. Is what happens. This wouldn't be John Hamm takes Atlanta. This would be John Hamm goes to hell. This would be the definitive conclusion <laughs> yes. to this. The final John Hamm. And I kept thinking, you know, if you were going to go with Queen for this final big sequence, then just go big or go home. Just do Bohemian Rhapsody. Can you imagine like, the cars like driving through that parking lot to Bohemian Rhapsody? Them trying to, the performances trying to keep up with that rhythm. I mean, I, I'm sure it was in the original cards, but they, for whatever reason, just couldn't <laughs> physically pull it off. When Baby loses his hearing, he starts yelling, oh, mamma mia, mamma mia. <laughs> so then we get pretty much a recreation of the end of Devil's Rejects, but instead of Freebird, it's Easy Like Sunday Morning with uh, by Sky Fiera, a cover of that song. The difference is they don't drive into the mouth of the beast. They don't just charge at the cops here, but they get on a bridge where cops are waiting for him. Baby takes the car, the ignition throws it over over the bridge and says, you know, you're you're not ready for this life. Or what does he say? You're too good for this life. Some shit like that. And gives himself up to the cops. He, he won't even let uh, Lily James have this moment of agency. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't care. He what has to decided. make her life decision for her. Yep. <laughs> Would you have forgiven this movie or felt better about this movie if they had committed to a, a grimmer ending? If they'd gone full Devil's Rejects instead of this kind of gutless happy ending that they somehow arrived to? Uh, yeah, because that would have meant the movie was over. Uh, that, that's what I would have preferred. At this point, nothing was really going to surprise me, because then they go through the trial. They sentence him to 25 years with the opportunity of parole after five years. We get this montage of him in prison. And then, like, she fucking waited for him. She had been on one date with this guy. Yep. And she waited for him. And we don't even know how long it was, because neither of them have aged at all. And the car is used. You know, you could be fucking any period of time there, there's no telling the problem with that big with the relationship 
I mean, obviously, we've listed a lot of problems. Like the dialogue, the flirting. The, I mean, I think they have chemistry, but it's not put to good use. But ultimately, it's just that Baby, who we find out his real name is Miles, he's just not that interesting when he's not driving. And Deborah has never seen him drive until the very end of the movie. So I don't get why she's fascinated by him. You know, I understand why he is fascinated by her, because the movie does enough to hint at the fact that she kind of reminds him of his mom and that also, well, you know, she's Lily James, so she's super hot. But I don't see why she is into him that much to where she would just risk everything uh, in her life to just go with this criminal. And yeah, you're right. Like, why would she wait for him? (laughs) Are you really telling me that Lily James didn't have any better prospects in the However many years he was in prison, I don't buy it. <laughs> For real. And did she just keep working? I mean, she she wouldn't have definitely done anything illegal, so there's nothing to hold her for. But did she just keep working at the diner? Like, <laughs> how awkward was that when she showed back up and the coworker's <laughs> like, your boyfriend just like shot someone in here the other day. <laughs> She's like, what boyfriend? <laughs> uh, but it's over, mercifully. It's a and, happy ending. And then your girl I guess. sings us out. She does. I like Sky Ferreira a lot, obviously, as has been documented in this episode. But this movie sucks, dude. Are you ready for real talk? Are you in real talk yes. already? <laughs> I was okay up until hour six of this movie, and then it kept going. And then over the course of the last hour and a half talking about it, I've realized that, yeah, it's... I apologize to Julio and to Kip Mooney and to... <laughs> litany of other people that like this movie because it's about to get real (laughs) all right let's go to real talk so you're a mute baby is that what it is are you a mute no (laughs) so um what are you listening to uh music that's right you tell them baby For God's sakes, Griff, leave the kid alone. You can't just be in crime, right? Not without being a little criminal. I just want to find out what's going on between those ears. Aside, of course, from uh, Egyptian reggae. What's it matter to you? Just think that he thinks he's better than us. He wants to sit there in his car and keep his white shirt clean while the rest of us, we roll in the dirt. One of these days, baby, You're gonna get blood on your hands. And you're gonna find out that that shit don't wash off in the fucking sink. Relax. The kid did his job, all right? I ever say that the kid wasn't great at his job? Nah. I think he's a star. And we are back. But before we get into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect on our patron feed. And also we let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. It is... October. What that means is that we have a new set of QVRs and also a new uh, patron-exclusive episode. Uh, Let's start with that. Our patron-exclusive episode this month was picked by Alex. It's a movie that I've never seen. I'm assuming it's a movie Alex has seen. You've never seen it? I've never seen it, no. It's, uh, I guess, thematically appropriate for October. Yeah, that's why I picked it. Yeah, I, I like it. I like it. It's, it's kind of one of those blind spots. Everybody seems to talk about it, especially around this time of the year. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Hocus Pocus, which, I mean, I know of it, but kind of get the feeling this is one of those... Uh... Sarah Jessica Parker in that movie, man. My God. 
is that the Sarah Jessica Parker even more so than Sex and the City? On a like primal male <laughs> level of like hotness, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that we'll have an episode about that, just full on real talk, just for the patrons, uh, and then. We have a couple of uh, new QVRs. Uh, this time they were picked by patron NerdRevert. Alex, he just gave me two titles and he said, you guys figure out who gets what. So one of the movies is called Red Lights. It's available on Tubi and Peacock. And the other one is called Riders of Justice. And it's available on Hulu. I don't know anything about Red Lights. And all I know about Riders of Justice is that it has Matt Nicholson in it. How I do don't you know wanna, what either of those are. Yep. How, how do you want to split this? I will take uh, Writers of Justice. All right. I will take Red Lights. Stay tuned for that, dear patrons. That will show up sometime during October. And then the standard stuff, our deleted clips that didn't make it to the episodes, our pre-recording notes, and, of course, Contrarians After Hours. <laughs> spin-off show where we talk about other things that are related to what we watch, what we listen to, what we read, uh, what we play. Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? A cautionary tale <laughs> of when it's midnight or one in the morning and you're trying to just kind of relax before bed and you're going through the 70th page on Netflix just looking for shit to watch and then you come across like a suggestion or something and you think it's the right way to go. Stick with what you know. <laughs> I came across this dog shit movie called Friendsgiving that it was it was a perfect rib and I will explain why it was a picture of Kat Dennings. It was labeled late night comedies and the little plot synopsis. I was like, why not? First frame, boom, Malin Anchorman. I was like, fuck me dead. This is the worst possible thing that could happen to me. And of course, because you know me, I had to finish the movie. So we'll talk about that movie and just the importance of uh, picking your spots and knowing when to stick with uh, what brung you to the dance. But other than that, man, we recorded on Saturday and yeah, I just watched those fights on Saturday, which were fucking phenomenal. And since then, I I watched, uh, I don't know why, I got a wild hair just to watch the 2018 Halloween again, even though it's about to be October. I think it's because I got so, I like watched the Halloween Kills trailer so many times that I got so hyped and I had to like do something to satiate that hunger. Oh man, they, they got you bad. They got you hooked. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, my, my contribution to After Hours is also going to be, well, partially negative i i have two titles for you alex one is a big like avoid uh just because i know you and i'm your friend and also i don't think that you'd last more than 10 minutes maybe with this movie it's uh the latest from and it saddens me to say this uh the latest from leo carax the guy behind holy motors which we were nice very much into uh and if you listen to our guest appearance on uh the film busters podcast you could hear the two of us and Ben and Paul and Adam just kind of dissecting that movie and having so much fun. Uh, okay, well, so he has a new movie now. It's a musical. It stars Adam Driver and uh, we can never remember her Wolf. name. Wolf. <laughs> uh, Ghul. Marion Cotillard. This is, that's a weird curse of the contrarians yep. that like over time we've just forgotten her name. <laughs> Not her fault. Yeah, Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. And it is just, well, we'll talk about it, but I'll just say that I, it hurts me to not, not even, it's not just that I'm not able to recommend it to anyone. 
it's also that I don't even like it. You know, because I could like it and still say, hey, it's not for everybody. No, this is like, it's not for everybody and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. But just so it's not all negative, Alex, I also watched a documentary on Netflix called This Changes Everything. And it was really interesting. It was just this kind of uh, analysis of the history of uh, female representation in the movie industry behind and in front of the camera. And it just breaks it down with actual data. And it was... It was really, really interesting. There's a lot of uh, actresses and producers and directors that kind of chime in, and it was, it was good. We'll talk about it. I, I'll, I promise, it, it won't get preachy, but I, <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm like, everybody should watch the documentary, and I think that we would, it would elevate the discourse <laughs> when it comes to, the, to representation. So Annette, which is that Annette is the name of the musical. I, I dislike the movie so much, I even forgot to name it. Annette on Amazon Prime <laughs> from Leo Carax. Uh, disappointing, uh, but still. You know, worth talking about, I guess, uh, musical. Um, this changes everything. The documentary on Netflix, and then Friends Giving. Yes. Okay. It's a bad movie. A cat Dennings vehicle, or, or or so they would tell you. So all that stuff on our Patreon channel. Go to patreoncom Prime, Look at our tiers. See if anything tickles your fancy. If you feel like like joining one of the tiers and and becoming part of the Contrarian supplements. Indeed. And now. The car bomb. Uh, that's from Dr. Dre's Chronic 2000 album. I think they, why is that in my head? They play uh, the the opening to one of those songs in this movie. Anyway, this movie plays every fucking song under the sun. And they're all good. The soundtrack's good. Doesn't mean the movie's say, good, like, if, if nothing else, I would think that you uh, you would appreciate the soundtrack. That's, that's kind of like your thing more than it is mine. Yes, but it doesn't mean it needs to be the whole movie like the your whole movie doesn't need to be the soundtrack what makes a good movie is a movie that's structured with a good soundtrack sir quentin tarantino figured that out long ago and edgar wright's done it before also um i suppose because this is going to be one where we're likely going to get lost in thought so (laughs) let's just go ahead and the people that did not like it what were they saying julio all right few rotten quotes from the rotten tomatoes website Brent McKnight from The Last Thing I See says, While I appreciate the meticulous care and deft editing that went into crafting the film, I still find Baby Driver completely insufferable. It sounds like like you could be saying those words pretty soon, Alex. Insufferable is not the word I would use. Oh, all right. Uh, next, Lee Lai from Mediaversity Reviews. People of color are picked off easily, like a retro horror film where the black guy gets killed first. There you go. I don't know, man. That's, that seems like an overreaction. Uh, Glenn Dunks from Junkie says, It is perhaps appropriate that the last time we will hopefully ever have to look at Redacted, Smug Face is in a film that is as equally proud of itself. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. And finally, Adam Graham from Detroit News. Baby Driver is very savvy about pop music and pop culture, and it has a number of thrilling car chase sequences. But those are side items, not main courses, and you can't put dessert before the meal. It winds up driving in circles. I like dessert. Yeah, I mean, it is it is the same story told four times over in the same movie. It's the opening scene of Drive told four different times in the same movie. Uh, the opening scene of Drive is the best part of the movie. <laughs> so why not? <laughs> uh, 
I mean, there, there's fault in that argument uh, from many standpoints, but <laughs> it's basically a short film that is just expanded over two hours. And again, not there's anything wrong with that. It's just not for everybody, me not being that person. That's what I always said about American Hustle. People obviously love that movie. I think it would have been an amazing short film. And with this, uh, short films don't pay for the mansion. I get it. And that was the case here. And this was clearly, if there's one thing that just leaks through the film and drips down the screen and just permeates into your being, it is the passion and the overall almost piece of his soul that Edgar Wright gave to this movie. I would be shocked if he tells you there's much of this movie that wasn't exactly how he saw it. <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, his last airbender. He's like, I just took it for the money. <laughs> it was a paycheck. But uh, You just brought it up, so it needs to be cleared up right away. You are not saying that this movie is on the level of American Hustle. No, 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 no. Okay. I, that's always the one I go to that I talk about movies that are overly long that have potential, have like a really good 20-minute story in it, a really, really good meaty chunk to it, but it's just, for whatever reason, multiplied times you know five for no real reason. I just realized me saying on the level of American Hustle makes it sound like I'm saying that American Hustle is good and this is as good as, no, as bad as American Hustle. <laughs> But yeah, okay. So, you know, we're finding some common ground. Uh, there is, because that last quote mentioned dessert, I, something that will sometimes get puzzled looks from friends that go out to eat with me is that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, I just feel like eating dessert first and I'll just order whatever. Like, I won't do this if I'm, you know, having a, a somewhat serious dinner. But if I'm kind of like just relaxed and like doing my own thing or I have friends over, or, you know, around or whatever, I mean, I'll be like, yeah, sure. You know what? I want to start with like, the cheesecake <laughs> and then we'll figure out the rest of the meal. There's nothing wrong with having dessert first sometimes. And there's nothing wrong with sometimes only having dessert, you know, that one night. So there's a problem with having dessert more times than you should. Right. There's a problem with dra- dragging tiramisu. Or in this case, uh, you know, like um, the hot brownie with the scoop of ice cream on top. I, I God, I'm such a fat ass. I use this exact same analogy on movie reviews and 20 cues. Dragging that out an extra 40 minutes. And by the end, it's just like soupy and just like, fuck this. I don't want it anymore. I agree. But still, when you think of the good parts of the, of the you know, when you first started eating the brownie with the ice cream and how good it was, you're like, I would do this again. Okay, so number one, what this needs to be, listen up, you fucks. This needs to be established right off the bat. At no point in this movie, for no singular moment or second or millisecond, did I at all think it was everything I heard it was. At no point in this movie did I think this was as good as everyone said it was. I don't think the hype was warranted. Not even the opening. I didn't. It's drive. It's drive. Oh my god. It's it's. I mean, it's drive in the sense that you have. You know, two white dudes driving cars <laughs> in, in, in a heist. You know, but there is the. Well, okay, I'll, I'll give it this. It had John Hamm, and I was like, "Oh, here we go." Uh, yeah, <laughs> you have my attention. To to finish my thought, Julio, I'm sorry. I, I know you like this movie, so I know you. I know how you get when you're in passion. So I just want to finish. <laughs> At no point did I think this movie was in the same galaxy as Scott Pilgrim or Shaun of the Dead. I didn't think it was anywhere near those movies, but. There were parts of this that I was really enjoying myself. 
the majority of this movie, I was enjoying myself. Uh, the lead, I don't know, man. I'm not. No one gave me the the keys to the kingdom. No one said, "Here's a movie, and you're going to be the lead in it." And you, you know, you're mostly quiet. You have to emote. <laughs> to me, it doesn't look like that's necessarily his strong suit because he kind of has like three different expressions. But whatever. I'm not going to harp on him because that's always. That's uh, we were talking about with desperate measures. That's always the easy way out. Like Sofia Coppola getting the shit for Godfather Three. <laughs> the easy way out is to harp on the Virgin on the set, and when they're surrounded by like dynamic A-listers. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. John Hamm was good. Jamie Fox was good. Christopher Plummer was good. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> it's hard to give him credit for much anymore. Um, I pop for seeing Sky Ferreira. The girl who played Darling was good. Uh, Lily James is good. But, dude, after an hour and 20 minutes, like, and I'm not saying it should have cut off there, but that's when it started to drag. And that the last 40 minutes was fucking torture. Like, it just drags and goes on and on and on and on and just repeats the same beat over and over and over again. Like, I wasn't kidding. John Hamm becomes Jason at the end. He just keeps coming back. Yep. And he keeps coming back. You know what's cool about Jason movies? They never go a fucking second over 90 minutes. So you get all that in way earlier in it. So there are things that are good about it, but when it was done, I was more just left with the idea of like, you guys are a little bit too easy to impress these days. (laughs) You're too jaded, Alex. That's the problem. (laughs) Oh, that's that's a huge part of the problem. (laughs) No, I I actually agree with a lot uh, of... The shortcomings. In fact, I'm I'm actually harsher than you on some things because I don't like Lily James's performance in this movie. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I'm not not to the extent of what I said in Contrarian's Corner, but I I was serious when I said that she out of everybody she's the only character that feels fake. Everybody else they're larger than life, but I buy them, and she feels like she's reading a script. And I think I don't think that's on her. I think that the the character is just badly written. And she has nothing going for her other than some weird infatuation with this random guy. So I think that that kind of gets in the way. And I, the flirting doesn't work for me. It, it, it's weird. I know what he's going for. It's like kind of like what you said in Guns N' right? He's going for that old dynamic, that old type of interaction of like an old, not a rom-com, but, you know, those old uh, screwball comedies, I guess, kind of like that type of flirting and that stuff. But it just is, it doesn't work with me. Maybe, maybe it just doesn't mesh well with the stuff that I really like about the movie, which is just its energy and the way that the driving is shot and all that stuff. But that is, that is negative for me. Uh, and I agree a hundred percent that the ending is just, it goes off the rails so badly. John Hamm becoming a, a, a slasher killer is just, I'm like, what? Why? Why would you do that? I love his character up till that turn. And then he just, he becomes, you know, just this generic monster. And uh, and I hate the ending, like the happy ending. To me, it's like, okay, you didn't need to give me the uh, Devil's Rejects ending. But I also don't, didn't, you know, just, he goes to jail and that's it. Just cut. Like, you know, if you're going to take us that far, then end it there. I don't need the, the sequence where everybody's testifying talking about how good how good of a kid he is you know they, yes that was, oh it's just, ridiculous yeah i forgot to bury that in uh contrarian's corner <laughs> yeah it, it, i just i don't like it and the, the final shot of you know like the glossy fantasy shot of him you know and she's waiting for him and all stuff I, I just i don't care i guess it works if you're really invested in the relationship because that's really what you want but i wasn't so i just 
to me, all that stuff is extra stuff that could get cut out. So all that stuff I I, I don't like, and yet the movie still because it builds so much goodwill before it gets that bad, it it still works for me. So I'm not gonna argue with you when it comes to those things like this, it, all that stuff that happens at the end. Uh, even though all things considered, I think that I still I probably get more enjoyment out of it than that you did. You know, like even the whole sequence in the in the parking garage, as ridiculous as it is, especially on rewatch, because you know I knew what was coming. So just that that the whole chase where he is driving, baby and Deborah are driving backwards, and John Hamm is pursuing them. I mean, that's cool to me. That's that's more exciting than uh, most driving movies I've watched you know, in the past decade. And granted, most of those are just Fast and the Furious movies, but to me, this is like a, a cooler Fast and the Furious movie. Those movies, I don't go in expecting a whole lot of introspection and or, or a whole lot of substance. I just want to be thrilled. And to me, that yeah, the, this. I mean, in a way, we were kind of talking a little bit about that in the patron episode that you referenced, the Desperate Measures episode, right? That it's like that's a movie, that's a thriller, and you just kind of want it go in to have a good time and you know watch some good actors do their thing, and and then at the end of the the movie. Like it didn't change your world, but you had a good time. And that's kind of how I enjoy Baby Driver on that level. And even more so because to me, and that's why I was just shocked when you're like, uh, not even the, the the opening grabbed you. I, I remember when I watched this the first time, which I, I screened it, and uh, and then re-watching it uh, last night. Those first, I don't know, 10 minutes maybe, you know, which is like the initial heist. And then when he goes to get the coffee, the way it's shot that is filmmaking. I mean, it's not giving you emotion in the sense that it's not exploring the inner world of characters or whatever, but the way that the camera moves, the way that it's timed with the with the performances and the and the music and everything, it's uh that's art, even if it's not doing anything other than just working in unison for 10 minutes, you know, like that. I love that it, there's a moment when he's walking towards a coffee shop and uh, the song is playing and he walks past a wall that has a a painting of a guy playing the trumpet and then the song the music has the trumpet moment where you know somebody plays the trumpet and so he lines up in front of the the painting of the guy playing the trumpet and then he mimics that he's playing the trumpet and it's just the way that it all works together is breathtaking is way too uh, dramatic but you know what I mean like it, it really <laughs> it, it fills me with joy to see something working so well all he's doing like this movie is just him playing with with rhythm and music and tempo and you know editing that's all it is I don't if if it ever tries to do anything else it, it falls short but I think that there is value to that pure aspect of filmmaking of like, I have this soundtrack and I have these images and I have these actors and, you know, I'm going to put it all together in a way that flows perfectly. And yes, it's too long and all the other failings that, that, I, that I agree with, but there's the moments throughout the movie where it becomes just pure cinema, where it's just when he's driving and the way that he cuts from shot to shot, 
matches you know the the tempo of the song and then little things like the fact that <laughs> that uh his first heist with jamie fox because they have that problem you know that it goes bad and so they have to stop and so then he has to restart the song on his ipod because <laughs> he's like i can't you know wait wait i have to restart the song like that to me is hilarious like that's such a cool detail that, that they create this character that basically moves according to his own soundtrack is is just great so that's that's really why I like it so much. And I think that it probably hit that same sweet spot with a lot of people that, that love it. Now, if anybody tries to tell me that they love Baby Driver because it provides insight into the life of a criminal, I'll be like, what, what movie did you watch? <laughs> that was not it. But if they were like, I love Baby Driver because he was like going to a fun concert where the band is really on you know and maybe the maybe the they did one encore too too many and maybe towards the end there were a couple like drunk people that kind of ruined it for everybody but still like you know the beginning of the set was amazing <laughs> tremendous description <laughs> so it's it's that kind of experience for me i don't think it's as good as yeah uh, I, I think that edward wright has more um i want to say maybe cohesive movies in his filmography you know movies are more rounded and where everything kind of like... Do you have a favorite off the top of your head? Uh, it's probably Scott Pilgrim. Uh, I I haven't rewatched Shaun of the Dead in forever. So I, I every time I hear people loving on Shaun of the Dead, I'm like, it, it, it sounds like everybody likes it a lot more than I do. Uh, whereas like Scott Pilgrim, I must have see, watched it at least five times. So to me, <laughs> that movie is ingrained in my brain. And I have a, a special connection with uh, World's End because like I said, I... I went to see it, uh, arrived a little late, had a pl- it was like a late show. It was packed and everybody was laughing. It was a really good experience. So it's the opposite. When I hear people kind of dismissing World's End, again, I'm like, oh, I like that one a lot better than most people, I guess. I thought that was pretty underrated. Yeah, I, I think it's really funny. I, I think it's funnier than, than Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. He wrote Ant-Man, which I guess I remember that. I remember thinking... Uh... That like when I first read that, I thought he was going to direct it. I was like, oh, fuck. well, he was going to. That's the thing. He probably has credit. Okay, that's but yeah. but that's just because they probably use part of his script. But uh, he he walked away from the project. He couldn't get on the same page with Marvel, so they parted over creative differences. And that's why if if you uh if you ever make the the mistake of wandering into I guess the the what would you call them the the right bros area of film twitter and admin comes up you know you'll get inundated with messages and posts about why marvel is evil because they didn't let edgar wright do what he wanted to do with ant-man and cinema is dead and whatever and i'm like there are adults making adult decisions good for him for not making a movie that he didn't really want to make and i like the admin movie that we got anyway so we all won (laughs) Uh, it is cliche, especially in our age bracket, to talk about how great Scott Pilgrim is. But man, it is very, very good. So uh, I love Shaun of the Dead, and, and it sounds like clearly more than you do. But I, I do love that movie. Um, I think I said it, Hot Fuzz is okay, but it didn't work for me the same way as some of those others. But anyway, it, it was kind of weird with some of those scenes we were talking about when they were trying to harken back to the golden age of hollywood with the love the you know the romantic scenes between the two leads i was like man be uh, under the silver lake was an equally as quirky movie and i always i found the scenes in it like that to be so much more believable and that was just like the most modern example that i could tie from <laughs> uh, obvi- obviously under the silver lake is 
unlike most movies I've ever seen. So it's a weird thing to be able to uh, present as analogous. But I, I just, like I said, it, it's too long. And even the stuff that is cool isn't shockingly cool. My biggest pop was that Sky Ferrero was in it. And I didn't know that. And Flea, the whole thing with Flea. I was like, holy shit, that's Flea. Um, dumb Brandon Curtis line that I fucking lost my mind on, though, was when, oh, after the Mike Myers mask mix-up, when they, um, they're they leaving the crime scene, and the one guy is like, I had lost my shotgun, and J- Jamie Foxx goes, not groovy, man. Not groovy. <laughs> It's funny that, that was absolutely tremendous. It's funny that you mentioned Brandon Curtis. I think I mentioned it on the last episode. I don't know if it made the cut. You know, we had a conversation about Baby Driver. He he doesn't care for it. Uh, that was years ago. You know, when it first came out, it the conversation took place as we were driving to your place because we we're recording an episode with him. But anyway, he he kept ragging on John Ham and he kept calling him a ham. Oh, yeah, I know. And he kept going ham sandwich. I guess you know. <laughs> Referring to John Ham hamming it up, and every time I thought he was done, he would just go again. It was like ham sandwich. He would just say it and laugh. I was like, okay, man. Uh, so, so that's that's who's siding with you, Alex. You have Brandon Curtis and his ham sandwich, and I have Kip Mooney. I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the dignitary Kip Mooney. Uh, John Ham rules. Something Reed and I always talked about, and he texted me when we were talking about this, texting about this movie earlier today, excuse me, that him not becoming like a major leading man in Hollywood is baffling. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And yeah. uh, it's very strange. But like with this, it's, uh, of course, my thought process was, why couldn't this money have just gone to the second A-Team movie where he was going to be the bad guy? <laughs> <laughs> why couldn't we have just seen that instead? <laughs> Directed by Edward Wright. One thing I don't there you go. One thing I don't like about this movie is the whole baby driver look. The whole was the intention of this to make Egort, what's his name? Ansel Ansel Egort. Mm -hmm. Was the intention to make him a star? Because if it was, constantly covering his face with shit was not the way to go. (laughs) Because when he has glasses on, he looks like Colin Jost. And then when he has glasses (laughs) off, he looks like he doesn't know how to like emote like a real human being. Um, <laughs> Shaun of the Dead made Simon Pegg like a star. Mm. And Scott Pilgrim, obviously super bad had already happened and uh, Arrested Development. So it's not like Michael Sarah was some spring chicken coming into that, but that made him a star. And when you come off those two movies, you think of those two movies, you think of two star-making performances. And with this, this dude is trounced. And like I said, I don't want to be the guy that harps on the the newbie in it, but it's just... It was such a strange way to structure this movie considering his shortcomings. And I, I, how do you feel about this dude? I was thoroughly underwhelmed by him. Yeah, I I am too. And I that was something that I was trying to pay attention to on this rewatch because the first time I was so caught up. Here's the thing. When what works in the movie works on the level that it works for me, then... You get caught up on it to where he is he doesn't ruin it. But I walk away thinking, man, Edgar Wright is a hell of a director. I don't walk away thinking, man, Ansel Engert can carry a movie. But I don't know because I haven't seen him in anything else. I know he's in the Divergent franchise. I haven't seen him there. I haven't seen him Oof. in anything. So I don't know if he's 
you know, what he's like when he's playing a character that would allow him to show more emotion than Baby. You know, it's uh, what could be the problem is I, I think that the character of Baby is designed to be this sort of empty vessel because he's supposed to be kind of like mysterious. Uh, you know, he has this weird, he has these weird quirks and this obscure backstory. And I don't know if that ends up limiting the actor too much. If you take somebody that doesn't bring a strong persona just by being on screen, then you really have nothing other than the cool things that this character does that in this case have very little emotional punch because it's just him driving and, you know, doing cool stuff. So it's, that's why I walk away with lots of admiration for the filmmaker, for the director, the person that's calling the shots, framing the shots and all that. But when it comes to the performer, I'm like that, that was, he was, he was there. And I don't want to diminish what he does because really, I mean, you do need talent to kind of, nail the pacing of this movie you know especially those long shots where it's it's a choreography it's a musical number and he's he's nailing the beat of where he needs to be every time you know that has to be so complex to shoot and he doesn't ruin it you know <laughs> that seems like a backhanded compliment that you know the best thing i can say is that he didn't ruin it but i can't help it when i see all of this my instinct is to just praise edgar wright and not necessarily him as a performer i mean he gets the most emotional moments are uh, that he gets, and they're not overly emotional, but just all the stuff with uh, with Lily James and already said like I don't really buy that relationship. And then his one scene with uh, uh, with Joe, you know, his goodbye scene with Joe. Like in Contreras Corner, you said that that was a good scene. Like, were you being serious or? I don't know. <laughs> I think by that point in the movie, I was just so desperate for something that I enjoyed, and. I kind of thought the recording he left for him was sweet. Yeah. It just felt like an the only good moral character throughout it besides Deborah was Joe. And to see him get like this undignified conclusion where he's just dumped off on a doorstep, it, it was like I said, I, I thought the recording was wholesome. But the if you like actually think about what you're watching, it's like, wait, this he's just kind of abandoning this guy. I know he's what he thinks is good for him, but this guy deserved, you know, better treatment in the end, that type of thing. Yeah. I, I, I kind of feel the same way. I think that the guy that plays Joe is just, it has such a sweetness. Uh, he exudes such sweetness that you can let the movie kind of, you know, work for you there and not think about it. And just, it's, it's, it's sweet and sad. Yeah. The recording and just the fact that they're saying goodbye and he asks him if he's ever going to see him again. And he does, you know, he doesn't know that is probably the most emotional moment featuring, baby driver like the, the protagonist that i can think of and even then it's just kind of with qualifiers so if i cared more i would go down this guy's filmography and just check out what else he's done and see if it's just that oh they actually muted him in baby driver he's actually a much more charismatic guy and they muted him in baby driver so he wouldn't overshadow the other cool stuff going on it's a bossy strategy from edgar wright and you know i guess the discussion is up of whether that was worth it, whether it worked, you know. Because really, why would you cast him and not? I mean, you're Edgar Wright. This is your what fifth, sixth movie. You're you're a name. You could, I mean, theoretically, cast anybody you want. In fact, you probably do better if you cast a bigger name. And yet, he cast uh, a guy that wasn't an unknown, but he wasn't really. You know, nobody was gonna come go watch Baby Driver because they were fans of you know the guy playing Baby Driver. <laughs> they were going because they were Edgar Wright fans or fans of of heist movies or driving movies or the supporting cast. I don't know. I kind of feel like 
I can't truly judge his performance because I haven't seen him in anything else. And this movie, even though he is the protagonist, doesn't give him that much to do. Yeah, it's an interesting... Um, I guess it'll be interesting to see what he does. It'll be interesting to hear what you have to say about West Side Story because God knows I'm not going to go see that. Does it say who he's playing? Is he like one of the main guys? Is he Tony? His character had a name. His character is Baby. <laughs> B-A-B-Y. <laughs> yeah, the dialogue in this was also just shit. Uh, yeah, he's Tony. That's the main guy. Holy shit. Okay, well, there you go. I mean, West Side Story, he's not going to be able to hide behind, you know, Edgar Wright's It's filmmaking. sink or swim, motherfucker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> By the same token, you know, West Side Story, he won't be limited by a filmmaker that basically built a movie around him that didn't allow him to shine. I mean, I don't know. How do you feel? Do you think, well, it's it's hard actually because you, you don't really like the movie because I was going to say, do you think that the movie would lose something if you cast somebody that was more charismatic at the center? To me, that's kind of a difficult thing to say because I'm like, would a person that's charismatic at the center of this movie draw too much attention to themselves and dim the light around everybody else, which is one of the things that I enjoy so much, you know, the the larger-than-life characters, the cinematography. Uh, Julio. Yes? Have you ever seen a movie called Drive? Fuck that movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know. Like, if, so, in case you're new, if, if you're new here, here's where we stand with Drive. Alex loves Drive. He worships at the altar of Drive, where it's like, I think that it's okay at best, and <laughs> I definitely do not care for Ryan Gosling's performance in it. But what you what you're just I know you like you don't want to hear it, but what you were just describing was that movie. It's like uh Okay, so I guess I like, answer my own question. The, the the answer is no, it wouldn't be a better movie. It would be dry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's always a gamble, man. We, shit. I was watching something recently. It's always the way you forget when you're in the moment, but those movies that you take an A list cast and then you plorp in the middle of it this star that no one's ever you know the introducing credit mm-hmm. you know they're not all Kavanjane wallace and yeah um, it's it, it's a tricky thing to do and i think that this movie tries to do what it can to have something new at the focus but allowing the big moments that resonate go to the literal oscar winners and oscar nominees which this movie I read it was an Oscar-nominated movie. I was like, what? <laughs> but it's Oscar-nominated in the sense that, because it's right there, Drive is an Oscar-nominated Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Wolfman is a fucking Oscar-winning movie, for Christ's <laughs> sakes. But Suicide it was, Squad. Uh, Suicide Squad. There you go. Transformers. It was nominated for Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing, where I don't really see how you could make any argument against yep. those nominations. Absolutely fantastic. There's that moment, uh, and by then, I know this is when you're already done with the movie, but the big chase after Jamie Foxx dies, I really like it. I I, I definitely liked it more this time, because I remember the first time I watched the movie, I'm like, man, he's not driving. It's not as much fun. But this time, I was paying attention to the soundtrack even more, and it just, I love that they even timed the, the shooting. Like, John Hamm pulls out his gun, and like, realistically... It doesn't make sense, but in the aesthetic of the movie, it makes sense that he only shoots when the when the song hits a certain beat. Oh, dude, fucking hated that. I, I figure because of the way that you were talking about it in Contreras Corner, I'm like, this sounds too real. <laughs> he hated that. <laughs> I had a friend in college who we worked at Cinemark. We were projectionists together, and he 
the one that comes to mind was the trailer for Hellboy 2. It had um, Mindhands Brenth by uh, Rammstein, or Rammstein, however you want to say it, in the, or uh, not however you want to say it, however is correct to say it, in the trailer. And there was like the sequence of like these shots cut together of Hellboy firing off his gun that were synced to the music, mm-hmm. like the big boom, boom, boom in the song. And he was like, I fucking hate that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, the way the music synced up to the the action. I was like, that's cool. He's like, no, it's not. Today, watching Baby Driver, I realize what Michael meant that night in projection <laughs> at Cinemark in Denton. Hopefully he's listening. The way the guns fired is... It's like, fuck off. And especially it's one of those things, as you've always said, as you so eloquently put it many, many moons ago on here, if a movie has you up until that point, you're just going to go with it. You're going to ride with it. With me, all I wanted for was for this movie to be over. So when they try to do these like li- really cutesy-wootsy things, I just it I hated it, and I wanted it to end, and it would not end. And they continued to do this shit. <laughs> I probably, I don't remember the Hellboy 2 trailer. I probably would have been amused by that specific moment. I would say the baby driver adds an extra layer to it to where it it somewhat justifies its aesthetic and its approach to to the to how it tells the story because I think that it immerses you in the way that that baby experiences the world and this is you know how he lives and he 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 has a, the tinnitus and so he's always listening to music and so he can't help but move to the rhythm of the music and live his life to the rhythm of the music and he has the different iPods that kind of control his tempo and then what I think is cool and I know our friend Reed doesn't because I remember when we had a brief discussion about Baby Driver this was something that he brought up you know it's just that at some point it bleeds over and it's no longer that oh well the movie's being told this way because baby is listening to music that goes this way because at some point he's not listening to music anymore you know and it's like when he's running you know it's like oh well he doesn't have the headphones anymore it's just so why are people still moving in sync to music that is not directly plugged into his ears but i like that i like that the gimmick suddenly starts taking over the entire movie now and it's it's it goes beyond what he's listening to now it's just the entire world that starts behaving that way it doesn't make sense like in a logical sense and that was where Reed and I were clashing when we had that conversation because he was like, it doesn't make sense. But the movie is not meant to make sense, I think, you know, or at least I don't have a problem with it not making sense, uh, you know, not being rationally viable that everybody suddenly starts you know, moving to the rhythm of music that nobody's listening to. That's kind of like arguing that it doesn't make sense that people break into song in a musical. You know, this is this is a type of musical that, that he's making. So when you look at it from those lenses... It makes perfect sense that John Hamm is shooting, you know, in unison with with the with the song that it, that he's timing his shots to where it it would sound appropriate. You know, it, it, it's a musical aesthetic. It would be weird if it happened in a movie that was not driven by by music from the very beginning. But in this case, I, I think it works. Yes, that's right, Reed. <laughs> I <laughs> doubling down on that. Well, that's just like your opinion, man. Yes, it is ham sandwich. Ham sandwich. <laughs> you can just hear him laughing at himself yep. at that. So as I mentioned, Julio premiered South by Southwest, March 11th, 2017. That appears to be its world premiere that it had, which Edgar Wright premiering his film at the White Mecca seems to be extremely on brand for this. And then 
had a national release, a global release later that summer. On uh, June 28th, 2017, box office of $34 million, box office return, a little bit under $230 million. I mean, for all my gripes with it and my desire to, uh, it's not a desire to never see it again. I'm never going to actively choose to watch this movie again. It's definitely not one of those fucking, like The Happening. If The Happening's on, I'm going to get up and leave a room. <laughs> it's not that bad. I don't dislike it that much, but. That's what it is, and it has its fans. Clearly, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, the Oscar nominations for technical aspects, which I completely agree with. Uh, you, yourself, a fan of it. A balanced one, though. I appreciate the things you said that were very balanced about it. And let's not forget Kip Mooney. Oh, Kip Mooney. Great guy. It's really weird. I have this memory of walking with him. Um, I don't even remember the name of the building, but it's where we had our journalism classes, and there was this area in it that was enclosed in glass, and and it was like the sun was setting and it was it's like one of the most cliche college like buildings you could ever see. And I remember he and I, for some reason, talking about how much we love Springsteen. And it's one of the it's it like had the, the trophy case for like the sports trophies and shit like that. And I think that's probably why I have a vivid memory about it, because it was such a cliche experience. But Kip's a good dude. Did you uh, notice he was walking to the beat of whatever song was playing on his iPod? <laughs> Yes. And then, you know, we got into a firefight with the cops and all the bullets came out rhythmically. <laughs> no, I'm glad he's officially in Contrarian's canon. So, uh, okay. A C? C plus is, you know, kind of where I'm falling on things. I thought Jamie Foxx was a bit too much at certain portions of it. And obviously he's an amazing actor. So that's, it just kind of is either what he chose to do or kind of what he, Edgar Wright, kind of like, yeah, you know, ham it up type thing. Uh, no pun intended to the <laughs> ham sandwich, but I love John Ham. I thought he was great in this. The guy who played Joe was great, Lily James. So I, there's things I like about this, but the runtime really, really made it fall apart. And even then, some of the uh, just aspects of storytelling weren't really doing it for me. And like I said, Christopher Plummer is solid in it, which makes it have its own weird kind of <laughs> tilt that, of course, we could not have foreseen, but it is what it is. So I'm going to say C plus Julio. Where is it fallen? Um, it remains where it was before. Uh, it's four stars. If this movie was not shot, I mean, it's really silly thing to say, but if, if this movie was not shot and edited the way that it is, it would probably be three star at the most. You know, because, I mean, the story and the some of the dialogue is just not there. And then the ending is ridiculous. But like I said at the beginning, I get so much pleasure out of the way this thing is shot and the way it's it's all put together, especially, you know, in those those big sequences that where everything works. And they make so much of the movie. They, they, they make up most of the movie. So that mostly overcomes all the all the things that don't work and then when i get to the end of the movie i'm like that wasn't perfect but man when it was when it worked it worked so well so four stars well there you go so that's going to complete baby driver julio what is up next up next alex we have a returning couple of guests to the contrarians our friends ryan and bartek yes that ryan the ryan that made us watch hancock he expressed uh, a mixture of uh, enthusiasm and disappointment when he listened to our Tango and Cash episode and uh, kind of, I guess, set himself into this this mini quest 
to educate us on things that we're missing on bo- both uh, Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell's filmographies. So stage one of his plan was inviting us over to his show to spit and polish to talk about the movie Soldier, which starred Kurt Russell. So we did that. Mm-hmm. We we passed that test. I think that we all had a, a good conversation. A good time was had. And then stage two of his plan was getting us to cover the Sylvester Stallone comedy Oscar, which I've never seen. Have you seen it? No. Okay. I remember when you brought it up initially for this, I was excited. <laughs> well, I can't really tell if this is supposed to be uh, a really bad Stallone comedic performance that's meant to make us appreciate his performance in Tango and Cash, or if it's supposed to be a really good Stallone comedic performance that's supposed to prove to us that just because he couldn't do comedy in Tango and Cash, that doesn't mean that he can't carry uh, a comedy. I know very little about Oscar. I just know that it's rotten and that I haven't seen it. And it starts Stallone trying to be funny. So Ryan and Bartek, they're, they're coming over to, to the show to just do the thing with us. And uh, I am pretty excited about that. So, so that's coming up next. Uh, additionally, you can find Alex and I on a very recent episode of Movie Reviews in 20 Qs. As we uh, teased at the end of our Shyamalan anthology, we had one more Shyamalan movie that we wanted to watch. That was The Village. And uh, we watched it with uh, Sam. Sam Hurley invited us over. And we we threw 20 questions at The Village. And we had a lot of fun dissecting it. So you can look that up. Really fun podcast. Yes. And then if you want just a little bit more of myself, uh, I think I mentioned at some point, but the the episode is out now. Uh, Billy from uh, We Watch a Thing invited me over to talk about a movie that I would never talk about with you, Alex. uh, And that is Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic, starring uh, Bill Murray in what I realized might be my favorite Bill Murray performance. Wow. I know. I know. I, I had never realized that until i just rewatched it you know recently and talked about it with billy and it was a great conversation i'm not gonna spoil it for for listeners but much like with the the movie reviews in 20q's episode in the village billy and i didn't see eye to eye when it came to black aquatic not not all the way so so there's a lot of back and forth there as well check out those podcasts those guys are great and then like i said up next is oscar with ryan bartik all right so that's going to take us into perennial plugs First of all, we'd like to give a thanks to the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hansworth Geezer, he's the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our website, on our Patreon page, and of course, our merch. He looked at our, our little anthropomorphic tomato gimmick and he was like, what else can I do with this? <laughs> So kudos to Hans, who's a great artist. Like I said, he's a podcaster. He has a, a couple of podcasts, Nación Combi, about Peruvian current affairs, and Marginal, about the economy. And he has a bunch of books also. You can check out all his work on uh, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. Uh, he's, he's a novelist. He has a bunch of zombie novels. Uh, a fake Peruvian history book called uh, Historia del Peru, uh, which is about what... Peruvian history would be like if zombies had been part of it. He's an overall cool guy. Reach out to him. Talk to him on Twitter at Mildemonios or email him at Mildemonios at Hotmail.com Hans, thank you for all your support. And we always like to close by giving a thanks to Ms. Zoe Perez for helping out with our social media game. 
If you haven't already, go over to Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime and give us a like. Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. We're on there. And Zoe makes some really awesome videos of us on there. Uploads them, uh, pictures, all that good stuff. And also on Instagram. If you have an Instagram account, you can follow us at Contrarian Prime. All the same, some cool videos, audio clips, interactive graphics. Zoe does all that for us, and we are endlessly appreciative. So with all that being said, I guess all that's left to do is to remember, a score doesn't need a score. We are the Contrarians. We are right. You are wrong. And we'll catch you next time.